Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of the films that I love. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is all about Alejandro Amenabar's 2001 horror film, The Others. I want to tell you before I go any further that there are full spoilers in this episode. There is a major twist at the end of this film, and I talk about it. It's the primary thing, actually, that I talk about in the episode because I think it's so fascinating. So I highly recommend that you watch the film first and then listen to this episode. I want you to know going into it that if you go any further and you listen to the episode, the ending will be ruined for you. I love this film. It's one of my favorite horror films. I I hope that if you've seen the film, you'll listen to the full episode, and I hope that you'll enjoy it. I really liked talking about it. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast and the work that I am doing on a monthly basis, and you can also access rewards and extras. I have Her Head and Films merchandise on Patreon, so definitely check that out. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadandfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash herheadandfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode, so I'd love to give a shout out to my wonderful patrons, Aaron, Rachel, Tyler, Max, Juan, Iris, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thank you all so much. I'm really grateful for your support and the fact that you believe in me. If financial support is not an option, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and or Stitcher. If you write a review on iTunes, I will read it on a future episode. You can also tell your friends and followers about Her Head and Films if you think that they would connect to the things that I share. Or you could send me an encouraging message on social media or comment or just interact with me in a positive way. That actually means a lot to me. I struggle with insecurity. I struggle with confidence. Sometimes I feel like I'm just speaking into the void and I don't know if it has any effect on other people. I don't know if it matters to other people what I have to say. So messages and things like that are really the only way that I know that. So if there's an episode you connect to, or maybe I got you interested in a film that now you really love, please let me know that. It it makes a difference to me. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Her Head and Films. You can find links to all my social media accounts listed in the show notes of each episode. So first, I'm going to talk about a couple of films that I saw recently and that I wanted to talk with you about. And just let you know about them. And then I will delve into the others. So I've added this segment called What I've Been Watching. And it's just a space for me to talk about a few films that I've seen and that might interest you or that I want to bring to your attention, but that I don't want to do like a full episode about. 
I just want to let you know about them. I want to share some of my thoughts and just let you know that I think these are excellent films. I think that they might interest you and to definitely seek them out if you are interested. So the first film that I recently saw just was astounding and I absolutely loved it. I have a big interest in film music, in film scores, and I absolutely love film music composers like Alexander de Pla or Max Richter or Johan Johansson who recently died or Dustin O'Halloran and you know even some of the some of the more classic composers. Um, so film music is really important to me. So I was very interested in this documentary called Ruichi Sakamoto Koda, and it's about the composer Ruichi Sakamoto, and he's done a lot of different film soundtracks. I would say one of my favorites by him was very recent for The Revenant, and it's a stunning composition, a stunning film score that he did for The Revenant. So I didn't know a lot about Sakamoto, but this documentary came across my radar. It was produced by Mubi, which is actually a film streaming site, but they've recently started to actually release films and produce films. They've done quite a few actually, and they are the ones producing... Luca Guadagnino's recent adaptation of Suspiria and they did this Ruichi Sakamoto documentary and it is beautiful. It's meditative. It is it's just it's stunning. Like I watched it the other night and I was in awe of it and I did not realize the life that Sakamoto has lived. He has done so much, been part of so much. He's also been an actor in some films. He got cancer a few years ago and the film shows him talking about that, about how he had to confront his own mortality. And it was actually around the time that he got cancer and he was going through the treatment that he also composed the film score for The Revenant, which I did not know until I saw this documentary. His music is amazing. (laughs) Um, It shows him going to Fukushima where there was, as many of you know, the the nuclear reactor uh, thing happened and radiation went into the air and after there was this really bad earthquake and tsunami and Fukushima just was, um, it was a huge disaster, a huge environmental disaster, uh, nuclear disaster really. And he went back there and he's like playing this piano and it's very powerful and his life he has actually been involved in in different historical things like he was in New York the day that 9/11 happened the the twin towers were very close to where he lived and he took photos of it and they show that in the documentary he's done musical compositions about Fukushima about Hiroshima he also explores in his work things about global warming and climate change. That's also something that's very important to him. They show him going to the Arctic at one point. So this is someone who has traveled the world. He's been everywhere and he really engages with the past, with past trauma, like Hiroshima and present trauma, like Fukushima 
and 9-11. It's, it was just a really fascinating documentary to watch and I, I can't get over it. And, and he's very in love with Andre Tarkovsky. There's this beautiful part of the film where he talks about Tarkovsky, about in particular the film Solaris and about the music in that film and the way Tarkovsky used ambient sound like rain and wind and sounds like that in his soundscapes for his films. And he really sees Tarkovsky not just as a masterful director, but as a musician. And he's actually at one point looking at a book of Tarkovsky's Polaroids. And I love Tarkovsky's Polaroids. Why is that book so expensive? If you go online and put in Tarkovsky Polaroids, the book is ridiculous. I would love to own a copy of that book. It's just stunning. Um, So he loves Tarkovsky. He also likes Paul Bowles. He incorporates a quote by Paul Bowles, um, reading it himself. Paul himself is reading it, obviously before he died. And it's a quote from The Sheltering Sky that appears in the film version of the book, The Sheltering Sky, with John Malkovich and he incorporates that into a song and it's just gorgeous. That whole documentary is is just beautiful and I just got this sense of a man who has lived an incredibly rich and epic and fascinating life and a man with the kind of mind that incorporates so many things from cinema to literature to politics and society This is someone who thinks on a very deep level about the past, the present, about the world around him, and then incorporates what he discovers and incorporates his thoughts into his music. And some of my favorite parts of the film are just of him recording sounds. Like he goes into the woods and he's recording, you know, bird song or the sound of the wind. At one point, he's recording the rain. And what that sounds like to incorporate into his music. So I I absolutely loved this documentary. Um, If you get a chance to see it, please do. The other film that I saw recently that absolutely blew my mind was Lucrecia Martel's The Holy Girl from 2004. This is my second film by Martel. Um, The other one I've seen is The Headless Woman. And... The Headless Woman is enigmatic. It's a, I think it's a difficult film in a lot of ways. And I wouldn't say that it affected me the way that The Holy Girl has affected me. Like, I am still thinking about this film. It's about this teenage girl. And she lives in this hotel with her mom. The hotel is hosting, like, some people who are there for, like, a conference. And one of the men in the hotel, in, like... She's on a sidewalk. It's very crowded. And one of the men, he's a doctor, he gets very close to her and something sort of happens. She's taken aback by it and he does it and then he suddenly leaves and he like just presses himself against her. That's what happens. She's just stunned by it and he is staying at the hotel. And so she starts to kind of stalk him and watch him And what I liked, I liked so much about this film, I thought it looked at female sexuality in a really complex way, in a way that's not often seen. And I also think that 
every frame of this film is imbued with Martell's vision and artistry. The way she frames scenes, the way she captures things, I can't even put it into words. There's an unspoken thing about her work. It's very emotional to me. It's very intuitive. It is art to me personally. And I don't know if I felt that when I saw The Headless Woman, but when I saw The Holy Girl, I was like, this is a visionary. This is an auteur. This is someone with a vision. Like so many times you'll watch a film, especially in today's time, and you just think, what is this director trying to say? You have a camera. You have a budget. You have the chance to make a film. What are you saying? Are you wasting my time? Sometimes I think that's what these directors are doing. You have the chance to create a work of art. Do something. Do something with it. You know, do something with the camera. Have a perspective. Have something to say. And you don't always get that when you watch films today. But when I watched Martell, when I watched The Holy Girl, I felt like every frame, this is someone who has a lot to say. A lot to say. And what I loved most was that this is really about a woman turning the tables. You know, these guys that go and do these things where they press themselves against a woman or they they do things like that, they never expect the woman to touch back. They never expect the woman to do anything back. They just expect her to be passive and submissive. And this girl, the whole the holy girl, this girl Amalia, that's her name, played by the stunning and haunting uh Maria Alce. She gives such an amazing performance in this film. Like her eyes are so fascinating. She stalks him. She starts to watch him because in that moment she's both both repulsed and aroused. And that's what the film is looking at is that conflict, is that contradiction that when you're young and when your sexuality is starting to develop of the complicated feelings of how you desire attention, you desire male attention, you desire wanting to be desired, but then maybe you don't know how to handle being desired, even as you want it at the same time. And he violates her space. He violates her and she doesn't let him off the hook for it. She engages with him. She follows him. She's almost like haunting him. She's not going to go away. She is like a perpetual reminder of what he has done. And because she's religious, she's also pursuing him, I think, not just because she's aroused by it. And I don't think, and I think she's confused by that. And she doesn't know why she's aroused by it. But she's also stalking him because she thinks that she can save him. She's very religious in the film. And so it works. It's, it's just this fascinating film. Like I... I'm not even doing it justice as I talk about it. Maybe I'll do a longer episode about it one day. I don't know. I don't even know if I have what it takes to talk about Martell at all. But what I liked was her agency. What I liked was that she went after him. That she wouldn't go away. That she started to invade his space. And she started to pursue him and stalk him and remind him of what he's done. But at the same time, she's trying to save him. She thinks in her mind that she can save him. 
And so I just thought the film captured that amazingly, captured sexuality in a really complex way, especially for a teenage girl, captured female friendship too. She has a friend in the film and that's really complicated. So there's so much going on in in this film. So I'll stop there. Those were two films that really impressed me and that I would definitely recommend to you if you're interested in them at all. horror on the podcast just because it's not a genre that I'm really familiar with or knowledgeable about (laughs) the way some people might be. I do watch horror from time to time. I tend to be more attracted to art house horror films or more psychological horror films. I don't tend to like the really graphic, violent, gory things. I tend to also like maybe more classic classic horror. So things that are in black and white and films like that. One that comes to mind is um, Les Diaboliques by Clouseau, for instance. That's a French horror film. Or Eyes Without a Face, which is also a French horror film. Y'all know I love French cinema, so I tend to watch a lot of French films, including French horror. But when October comes around every year, I want to celebrate this time of year. I like to decorate. My mom and I have already decorated our house for Halloween and we decorated the front porch with like some purple lights and just different things. We went with kind of like a witch theme this year. So I do I do enjoy sort of reveling in this holiday in this time of year. I call it you know the most ghoulish time of the year. I have talked about some horror films on the podcast like Carnival of Souls and Don't Look Now. Carnival of Souls is probably one of my favorites. I absolutely love that film and I really enjoy doing my episode for it too. It's like this little film. It's like a little cult film. I don't know if tons of people know about it or or enjoy it, um, but it's definitely one of my favorite horror films. And The Others is also a favorite. I saw it a few years ago. I never had a lot of interest in it. it. It's been really sort of lampooned in popular culture. There are certain scenes that have shown up, I think, in some of those uh, films that mock some of the horror films out there. I didn't know much about it. It, it came out in, in an odd time because Tom Cruise is one of the producers of the film, one of the executive producers, I think. And it came out in 2001. And 2001 also happens to be the year that Tom and Nicole Kidman divorced. And so what I remembered for a long time about the film was how it came out in this weird sort of period in both of their lives where he was attached to the film that they were going through a divorce. I'm not sure if the film came out before or after the divorce, but it's really the last film that they are connected to each other. And I think before that they had done Eyes Wide Shut and I'm, I started that film recently, but I haven't finished it. I have this terrible habit of starting films like I'll watch 30 minutes or I'll watch an hour and then I'll abandon them or I'll just get busy. But I definitely want to go back to Eyes Wide Shut for sure. I, I was aware of the film for that reason because really... What's fascinating to me about Nicole Kidman, besides just her great acting, is how once she divorced 
Tom Cruise, once they were no longer together, it seemed like her career really changed. In the 90s, I don't remember her getting the same kinds of roles that she started to get sort of 2001 and on. For me, The Others absolutely showcases her acting, but also a film like The Hours and a film like Birth, which I've covered on the podcast by Jonathan Glazer. She had a string for a long time of roles that were incredibly rich and nuanced and complex. And, you know, she won the Oscar for The Hours. And it's kind of shocking to me that she doesn't have more Oscars. Like, I feel like she should be Meryl Streep and have like three or four. Same thing with Julianne Moore. It's it's shocking to think about how some of these women that we consider some of the greatest actresses now, Nicole Kidman, Julianne Moore, and so on, how they really don't have the kind of hardware that you would expect. Uh, They don't have as many awards as you would definitely think that they would have. But it seems like in the early 2000s and on, Nicole really came into her own and she just started to get these amazing roles. And so it took me a while to get to the other. That's what I'm trying to say. It just was one of those films that was on my radar. I knew about it, but I I, I don't know if I was very interested in it because I'm not that interested in horror in general. But once I took the time to actually watch it a few years ago, this film absolutely became one of my favorite horror films. I don't know if it's necessarily critically acclaimed. I think it has a pretty high rating on Rotten Tomatoes, but obviously it may not be for everybody. I mean, for me, it ticks off a lot of boxes when it comes to horror for me. We have it set in the past. I kind of like historical period dramas. It has a gothic feel to it. We have this huge mansion, this huge house um, that sort of looks very old, like it's crumbling. We have fog. We have... Um, it just has this gothic feel to it that I absolutely love. I'm very drawn to the gothic and to gothic stories. And so this has all the things that I look for in a horror film. And I am very interested in haunted houses, in stories about haunted houses. So this film, it just hits a lot of my sweet spots when it does come to horror. And I think that it has one of the greatest endings of all time. And I'll talk more about that ending as I get deeper into the film. This film has definitely become a favorite of mine. But what I wanted to talk about before I go specifically into the film with you is I was thinking recently about the horror genre. And I'm not someone that thinks very deeply about it or has a lot of knowledge about it. You'll have to maybe listen to other podcasts for that. I don't have a deep knowledge. You know, if you want to ask me about French cinema, that's another thing. You know, I think we all as cinephiles have specializations. I would say I'm much more interested in French cinema and also certain types of art house cinema. French is probably the one that I know the most about. I also really like contemporary world cinema. I've seen a lot of like obscure films like from Germany and Romania and and places like that. I love European cinema and, and things like that. So I think we all have our different specializations for sure. And horror for me is not one of them. But these are just some of my thoughts that I was thinking about um, with horror. And that is that I feel like horror films are really one of the few spaces or they open up a space for us to look at and talk about and engage with really dark things like fear and terror and trauma and loss, death, grief, 
pain. I can't name another film genre where you can engage with those things, where it is acceptable to talk about them. And when Halloween comes around every year and there's this big, you know, interest in horror films and everybody's watching them and and really engaging with them, we are, we're consuming things that are really dark and heavy and about like murder often and death and madness. In normal everyday life, you just don't talk about those subjects. You're not allowed to talk about those subjects. But when you watch a horror film, you can see those things acted out or represented in a way that is maybe safer than having to encounter them in your everyday life. You know, if you were to wake up one day and find out that your neighbor had been murdered, you wouldn't be very happy about that, obviously. That would be scary and disturbing and unsettling. But when you watch a film about murder or a film about a serial killer or or a film about trauma or, or death or loss, there's a distance there and you're a bit removed from it, but it's still okay for you to engage with it in some way. And for me personally, at times, I find that really comforting. And I would also say that's part of the root of my interest in true crime. I don't know how much I've gone into it on this podcast, but I am one of those true crime obsessed people. I watch a lot of like forensic files. I don't listen to a lot of true crime podcasts actually, which might be surprising. I tend to be more interested in docu-series, things like that. I like real stories. Like I'm not as into say CSI or Law and Order, the fictionalized accounts of crime. I'm much more interested in true crime. I even watch a lot of the old forensic shows, like I said, forensic files, but also things like American American Justice and The New Detectives. Those were some shows that were on the Discovery Channel and A&E back in the 90s. Unsolved Mysteries is a really big show for me that I've been re-watching recently now that it's available for streaming. So my whole life from the time I was a child, I have been interested in these darker things, but I explored them through true crime more than horror. I didn't watch a lot of horror growing up, but when I do engage with horror, I'm very attracted to ghosts, the supernatural, I guess you could say, to things sort of said in maybe the 1800s, like with the rise of spiritualism, you know, with the seances and, and, and things. And then also I would say haunted houses interest me a lot. And as I've gotten older and I've gone through things in my life, those stories have actually become more resonant for me. Like the others is actually kind of resonant for me in terms of the idea of haunting, of a haunted house, but also the grief that is in the film as well and other things that I'll get into. But I have found, I I still don't watch a ton of horror, but when I do watch it, it has a different resonance for me than when I was younger. Like, I guess when you're younger, it's like, oh, this is interesting. And now I read mystery. Like I've been really obsessed with mystery books recently. Like I read AJ Finn's The Woman in the Window and I'm reading Megan Abbott right now. Um, 
her newest book, Give Me Your Hand. So I've been getting more interested in mystery a bit. I find that when I'm depressed or when I'm sad, that there's something about mystery and true crime that engages my mind that I guess distracts me or takes me out of my own pain, my own emotional pain. And it focuses my mind on something else. And I get so absorbed in these stories. And it's the same thing with like the docuseries that you see on Netflix. Recently, I was obsessed with The Staircase. I devoured that. I devoured Evil Genius. That is a really great docuseries on Netflix. Coming up very soon will be season two of Making a Murderer. So I've watched a lot of that. I watched The Jinx when it was on HBO. Um, I If there is a true crime docuseries out there, I've probably seen it. And I've seen a lot of true crime documentaries as well. So horror and true crime for me, they're ways there but the thing is is that they don't just they don't just focus my mind they're not just escapist I wouldn't I wouldn't um put them in just those terms something that I've really connected with about true crime shows is the victims and their families telling their stories I also found that it was a way for people to talk about grief and loss that really resonated with me and kind of comforted me and I guess it still does to a certain extent because I lost my father in 2006. I was 16 years old and it was traumatic and it was catastrophic for me personally because he was everything to me. He was my best friend and we were very close and a lot of the the issues that I have and that I talk about on a regular basis on this podcast, you know, mental illness, depression, anxiety, grief, a lot of it stems from his death and from what that trauma did to me at such a young age. So when I've watched true crime shows and seen victims' families where they're talking about the person who was murdered, they're talking about who they've lost, that, that's been important to me to see that, to sympathize with that, to relate to, my dad wasn't murdered, um, but the loss, the, the talking about the loss, that matters to me. And it's something similar, I think, with certain horror films. Like, I really liked The Babadook. Am I even saying that right? The Babadook? I don't know. It's an Australian, uh, Uh, horror film. I don't really feel capable of talking about it on the podcast because there's a lot going on in that film, but that was a film that was about grief. And you'll actually see in quite a few horror films how much it's how much some of these stories are about grief and loss and death. And The Others, for me, explores that. It explores this idea of these two worlds, the living and the dead, and how those worlds overlap and mix. Now, I'm not religious, and I'm not spiritual, and I wouldn't say that I believe in ghosts, or that I believe in the supernatural, or the paranormal, but I have read things about it. I am interested in spiritualism, as I said, from the 19th century, because I think spiritualism really grew out of all the death of the Civil War, and really all the death in general in the 1800s, right? I mean, people had high mortality rates. People died of diseases. People died young. You see, you know, in the Victorian era as well, this engagement with death, you know, with mourning photography, with post-mortem photography, with um, communicating with the dead, that interest in ghosts and the supernatural, because you miss the people that you have lost, and you want to know what happens to 
to them after they die. And you want to believe that they're in a better place and that you're going to meet them again. I think that is a common and natural human desire. Unfortunately, it's not based in fact, evidence, or reality. And I've also talked on the podcast about my atheism. I talked about it in my episode about Jessica Hausner's film Lord, which is set in um, the site of Lord in France where pilgrims go. And I, I talked about my atheism. So I'm not a spiritual person, and I don't believe that there is another world, an afterlife. I don't believe in ghosts. I don't believe that this other world of the dead even exists, but I'm strangely interested in things about it. I've watched medium shows. I've watched like Long Island Medium and the Hollywood Medium and like I'm ridiculous in so many ways. I I have watched that stuff. I've read about it. Um, I, I can't explain it to you. I don't believe any of it, but the others is looking at that to some extent. It's looking at what if there are these two worlds and what if these worlds of the living and the dead get mixed and how do they overlap and yeah the relationship between the living and the dead and what would it mean for you to be dead and not realize that you are and that's that's why the twist in this film is so smart I think, and clever. So I just wanted to talk a minute. I'm mainly trying to talk about, as I go on these tangents, um, how horror, horror films, the horror genre gives us a space to talk about things that we don't normally talk about or engage with. And it makes it okay. It makes it socially acceptable during Halloween, during October, to engage with death and fear and terror and darker things and darker experiences and to explore them openly and to engage with those issues. And so that's why I'm attracted to certain horror films, especially the ones that are exploring grief, that are exploring what happens to the dead, what is our relationship with the dead once they pass, because that's something I myself struggle with of not feeling any kind of connection to my father you know, because I don't believe he's looking over me. You get what I mean? Like he doesn't exist anymore. And I don't believe he's like a ghost out there or anything like that. So what does, what does that mean to live um, not believing that, not believing that you will be reunited, not living as though you will see them again? That's, that's a hard reality. So the others really, I think, fascinates me, not just for its gothic, you know, aesthetic, and its gothic content, but how it engages with death and mourning and grief as well. And I'll talk more about that. So The Others is set in 1945, just after the Second World War. It's it's set in Jersey, which is in the Channel Islands. And from what I read, the Channel Islands were occupied by the Germans for much of the Second World War. And this takes place like right after the end of the Second World War in 1945. The film was released in 2001. It's directed by Alejandro Amenabar. He is both a Spanish and Chilean director. And he is also known for some other films like Open Your Eyes that has Penelope Cruz in it. And a film that I really love called The Sea Inside that stars Javier Bardem. That is a really good film. 
and Aminabar both wrote and directed the others. So Nicole Kidman stars in it. She plays a woman named Grace Stewart, and she has two little children, Anne and Nicholas. And she also has a husband who is apparently away at the war, or he was, and she doesn't know what's happened to him. She's waiting for him to come back. And his name is Charles. So this, I don't feel like I can go any farther because much of what I want to talk about with the film is the ending and is this whole premise that the ending sets up because this film has to work on two levels actually it's kind of like the sixth sense in that way by m night Shyamalan, which is another horror film that i actually really really like i i think the sixth sense absolutely holds up and i've always felt like Shyamalan did not get the the respect that he deserved as a writer and director maybe that's controversial for me to say i don't know <laughs> with art house cinephile people listening um i was in a film appreciation class when i was in high school that was in 2004. And this was a really important class to me. It really opened up my eyes about cinema as an art form. We watched a lot of old films like by Hitchcock. We watched Singing in the Rain, um, Some Like It Hot, all kinds of stuff like that. A lot of the classic American cinema, Charlie Chaplin. And at the end of that class, we had to do a project and we had to choose one director to cover. And at that time, I covered M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> I don't know why. I was drawn to his films for some reason. By that time, he had done The Sixth Sense, and I think he had done Unbreakable too, that has Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson. I just was drawn to his work. I, I still like it. I will still fight you over The Village, okay? I liked The Village. <laughs> I think I'm like the only person that liked The Village. Hell, I even liked Lady in the Water, okay? I liked Paul Giamatti, whatever. It has a really great soundtrack too. <laughs> so I'm a fan of M. Night Shyamalan. I've not watched Split. I've not seen some of his more recent work, but I think The Sixth Sense holds up and anytime it's on TV, I will watch it because I just, I think there's something really powerful. I still cry at all the different scenes and obviously I'm not giving anything away about it just in case you haven't seen it. But hope, hopefully if you're listening to this episode, you have seen that the others, okay? Because I have to talk about the ending. So this film has to work on two levels just like The Sixth Sense had to, but I'm not giving anything away about that film because the twist of the ending so any time a film has a big twist and a big ending, you have to, you, you can never see the film in the same way after that once you know the twist. And so it has to work on two levels. It has to work on that first viewing when you don't know what's coming and you're, you're caught up in the suspense of it and you don't understand how the pieces are going to fit together and what the ending's going to be. And then it has to work on repeat viewings when you do know what's coming and you can put the pieces together because those pieces have to make sense. And the others does that brilliantly where every piece comes together perfectly. And so for me doing this episode, this was my second time watching it. Whereas the first time I saw it a few years ago, obviously I had no idea what was going to happen. And what's so brilliant is that at the end, the whole time, you think that this house is haunted, that 
um, Grace and Anne and Char Anne and Nicholas that they are living in this they live in this isolated manner you know this big mansion in the woods that's covered with fog and these three servants arrive one day and they won't work and Grace hires them and of course the there's this red herring the entire film where you think that the servants are the ghosts the servants are dead and they are causing all of the things that happen throughout the film that's really probably what I thought the first time I saw it that oh it's the servants obviously they're the dead ones and that's confirmed when Grace finds this post-mortem photograph of the three of these servants and it turns out that they had died in the 1890s or the late 1800s from tuberculosis and we find out that they've died and so we think oh that's the big reveal that's the big reveal but no the film goes even farther and we realize that grace and these two children are actually the dead ones they are not being haunted in the house they are doing the haunting another family has moved into the house and they and their dead spirits they are ghosts and they are haunting that family the world of the living and the world of the dead are overlapping they are clashing with one another that that twist is just absolutely brilliant to me that in the end we see this seance happening where this old woman who has been in the film previously when she's in the veil you know grace sees her all of a sudden in the veil uh when Anne is trying on her dress for i guess communion or something like that and we realize that actually she is the medium and she's conducting this seance to communicate with grace and the children because grace had gone mad apparently i guess she had gone mad over over the death of her husband because we do see Charles in the film and he's obviously dead. He obviously died in the Second World War. Yeah, I mean, she is alone in this house during the war. She's trying to take care of two children. Her husband has died or is missing. It's it's not totally clear what has happened to him. But obviously, I think there is grief there and that she probably loses her mind over it. And she kills her children she smothers them and then she shoots herself they are the ghosts they are haunted in a lot of ways they have created this haunted house and this whole time they didn't know they didn't realize that they were dead and grace has to confront the horrible act that she has committed i mean this is about a woman committing murder against her children and that's not something we see often this is a woman who has gone mad and um it reminded me sort of of Andrea Yates that was like a really big story years and years ago about this woman who had these five children but Andrea Yates had had five children that she murdered she drowned them she's still in prison for it it was this huge story because we are always interested and fascinated by women who have committed murder whether it's Andrea Yates or Susan Smith uh, it's it goes against everything that we believe about women or that we expect for mothers to do. But Andrea Yates was shown to have postpartum depression. It actually, what happened actually really sparked a big cultural conversation about postpartum depression. I do not remember that subject being in the news the way it was until the Andrea Yates thing happened, until she committed that crime. 
And then it became much, uh, much more widespread and well known. And I remember that Brooke Shields wrote a book about postpartum depression. And of course, as we all know, Tom Cruise attacked her for it because of his Scientology and his beliefs about that. And some say that the divorce between Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman may have been related to his Scientology and his religious beliefs. So, um, that's sort of interesting to note, I think. So when women murder, especially when they murder their children, this is seen as the ultimate act, you know, the ultimate, um, the ultimate horror. I mean, the film doesn't really dwell on it. It doesn't really go deeply into why she killed her children, but that is part of the film and it's a disturbing and unsettling part of the film. And I think we also have to ask ourselves how much is her murder of her children and then her own suicide a product of the war, of the trauma of living under war. I mean, I think of Virginia Woolf. I think of how she killed herself during the Second World War and how some of some of what she was going through was caused by the fear and the uncertainty of the possible invasion of Britain, of the Germans coming in. That was a very real possibility that Virginia and, and her husband Leonard Wolf and everybody in the country at that time were living with. It was a terrifying prospect, I'm sure, and the Channel Islands were already occupied. So we have this woman, she's alone, she's isolated, she's trying to take care of two children. Her husband is off at the war, most likely has been killed. She's under, she's in an occupation zone during one of the worst wars in modern human history. She snaps. She loses it. She goes mad. I think not just from the grief over her husband, but over the war itself and and the trauma of that war. And I, I cannot imagine what that was like to live under occupation. I still can't imagine it. I think we as Americans have no idea what that's like. And yet, of and yet, obviously, we inflict it on others. I mean, when you think of people in Iraq or Afghanistan living under American occupation, I don't understand how that's acceptable to us, that to live under a military occupation. But of course, we've never had to experience it. We've never had bombs being dropped on our homes and in our backyards. So if we had that experience, maybe we would think differently about it. We are always the ones inflicting that violence on other people who are thousands and thousands of miles away, and we don't have to confront the damage that we inflict. So this this experience of occupation, of being oppressed in that way and terrified I think it obviously has a huge effect on Grace and I do think that is an element in this film even though it never shows the Germans it never shows I mean because it's said after the after the war has ended we don't see any of that I mean you could argue maybe that's a weakness of the film that we don't actually see that that we don't see what she endures on her own during this occupation. I mean, what was she going through? How was she getting food for them? You you think of all these things. That's a lot of pressure on someone and it had to be terrifying, but we don't see any of that. But I think because Aminabar sets it during that time, 
I think it raises questions about the Second World War, the trauma of it in the Channel Islands and, you know, what the people went through there, what people in general went through during the Second World War. I do think those are important things to talk about. And I think it's also about a woman on the edge, a woman sort of pushed to her limits, a woman grieving, a woman trying to keep herself together and she's not able to and she goes mad from it it was more of like the situation creating this crucible you know like this pressure cooker's kind of situation that absolutely she could not deal with and she could not handle and probably the death of her husband just sent her over the final precipice which she was already on the edge because of everything that she was probably going through. I think that's a really important aspect of this film, of this woman alone in this house, like the world that creates of just you and these children and maybe some servants, possibly. Because she talks about how suddenly one day the servants just left. She obviously has no memory of the act that she's committed. She doesn't realize that they're dead. She, But she talks about how the servants have, have suddenly left and all of that. And, and the children are photosensitive. They're very sensitive to light and they have to be in the dark. And that's a, a theme throughout the film. And so the children are even more isolated because of their um, their health condition. So really it's just the three of them in this house completely cloistered in their own world and completely isolated from the outside world where so much horror and death and violence is happening. And then, of course, she replicates that horror and violence within the home, within the domestic sphere by killing her children and then killing herself. She sort of, she's pushed to violence by violence, by the violence of war, by the horror of war. And I wonder if not if that's maybe what this film is really about. Not just the horror inside the house, but the horror that was taking place outside of it. Because I think people forget that the Second World War, when people were living it, they didn't know, oh, well, it's going to start in 1939 and it's going to end in 1945 and we're going to survive this. Virginia Woolf didn't live knowing that when she killed herself. It was like right in the middle of the war when she committed suicide. People who were living through it did not know, well, it's all going to come to an end in 1945 with the dropping of the bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Another horror. When you're in it, you don't know when it's going to end. And there was a very real fear that the Germans could really take over. And look at what they did. You know, they killed millions and millions including 6 million Jewish people. So the the fear and the terror that people lived under at that time was incredibly intense and overpowering, I am sure. There's horror beyond the walls of this house, and then there's horror within it as well. But the horror within it is like a reflection, I think, of the horror happening outside of it. And I think sometimes those are the films that I'm most drawn to that don't just talk about like the horror of just, you know, going to summer camp and there's somebody who kills you. But films that engage with war and violence and and larger issues, you know. And I think The Others is kind of doing that. I mean, in my own interpretation of it. So I don't think it's just this gimmicky film. Oh, look at the end. They're the ghosts. They're dead. I didn't see that ending coming. 
And I will not believe anybody that says they did see it coming. I I don't think you do see it coming at all. I think you believe that the servants are the ones who are the ghosts and they are the ones who are dead. And I think Amenabar in his writing and in his directing does such a great job of distracting us with that when the whole time they are the ones who are dead. And, and it becomes so clear when you watch it on the second viewing. And I would encourage you if you have not watched it a second time to definitely do it. Because when I was watching it this time, I noticed things. I, I noticed how like the scene with the piano where the piano is playing and she goes in and she covers the piano. She covers the keys and locks it. And then she goes back in and, and it's open again because the world of the living and the world of the dead are are mixing and clashing that she's going into a room where the living people are and probably there one of them is playing the piano because there's a little boy in the family named Victor and um so you realize things like that and I guess like when the curtains are missing that that's obviously I guess the family that's living there they have removed the curtains or something so throughout the film there are all these little things that are placed and all these little pieces of the puzzle and when you go back and you collect all those pieces you realize what was happening the whole time that they were dead you know, and that they were the ghosts. And like when the children talk about seeing Victor, well, Victor's not the ghost. He is seeing them. They are haunting him. Grace is haunting the family that moved in. And then of course they, they run that family out because in the end they decide that they're going to stay together, that she and her children and the servants are going to live like in this kind of purgatory or this kind of limbo where they can exist almost like they are living but they're actually dead and it's a way for them to be together and I wonder too if Grace killed the children because she thought that they might be separated that with the German occupation she feared that her children could be taken from her or she feared that they could be killed I mean I know that at one time during the film she mentions bombings and raids and things that have happened and at first when I was watching it I thought oh they must have died in an air raid that's what I thought at first because I because it's been so many years that I had forgotten exactly how they died I just knew that at the end they were dead but then of course I realized later on oh she killed them and then killed herself but I wonder if part of her reasoning was that they could be separated or something could happen to them like in an air raid or a bombing that was I'm sure a very real fear like I would urge you to read Virginia Woolf's A Writer's Diary she actually talks about bombings and and different things like that that she lived through and she puts it into words like this confrontation that every person had to have with death with hearing bombs fall with hearing these raids and knowing that at any time they could die and it could all be over And she has some very powerful passages about that in her diary. I love Virginia Woolf, so I am obsessed with her in a lot of ways. So that's why I keep referencing her in this um, episode is for that reason, because she talked about some of that and the horror, like what, I mean, I read her, her writer's diary a long time ago, and I'm actually trying to read all her diaries now. There's like... I think there's five volumes actually and I've been trying to I'm still on volume one I've been on volume one for a year I'm such a slow reader for certain things I read a writer's diary many years ago I need to revisit it but I just remember the passages 
during the Second World War and the way that she wrote about the bombings and the raids. And I just remember how they conveyed the fear and the terror and the horror of it. So even though this is not set, this is set on the Channel Islands, which is not where Virginia Woolf lived, obviously. But they were living under that occupation and they were living under that similar fear. So that's why I thought of it. Because I I wonder if Grace... And I know this is a film. I love how I talk about it like these people really existed. But her story in a way I think sort of represents some of that experience of trying to survive a war and, and trying to raise your children and trying to get through it and the terror and the fear and the horror of it and how that can push you over the edge and how it can make you very scared. And so I wonder if she also killed her children and herself in her belief that they would always be together because she's very religious in the film as well she has the children reading the bible and things like that and she talks about god and and christianity and religion a lot throughout the film and so i wonder if she thought they would be together some way like in heaven and so they sort of create their own afterlife together in the house that they won't be parted they won't be separated They'll live together in this house with the servants. And uh, one of the servants says that at times they will notice the living and they'll sense them. And then sometimes they won't. And that it's just something that um, that they'll experience at times. Sometimes they'll sense the others, right? But of course, the whole twist is that they are the others, They thought they were being haunted by the others, but they are the others. And so I just love that twist personally. I just think it's so powerful. I also think it's sort of interesting that it's just Grace and the children in the house and not the husband and not Charles, the husband and father. Because at one time in the film, he comes back. Grace is, she's going to try to go find a priest to bless the house when she thinks that it's being haunted and she wants these people and these intruders as they call them throughout the film she wants them removed and so she's going to look for a priest to bless the house but she gets lost in the fog there's this huge amount of fog around the house and she's out there walking in the woods and she comes across charles her husband and so we think oh he's back from the war It's the end of the war and he's coming back. And no, obviously with the second viewing, I realized, yeah, he's dead. They can see each other. But for some reason, he leaves. He doesn't stay at the house. And I'm not sure how I interpret that exactly. That that all of them are not together. Like, it's so strange to me that he shows up and there's this reunion. And then he leaves suddenly. He leaves, like, the next morning. Maybe his soul is not ready for that. Or maybe he's horrified by what she's done by killing the children. You know, and she doesn't realize that she's killed the children. Could he be a a hallucination? I'm not quite sure, actually. But I do think it's interesting that it just ends up being her and the children And even though she grieves him and she's waiting for him, there's this very moving moment where she's holding like a shirt of his and she's crying. And some of her madness probably came from his death and from her grief. He is not reunited with them for eternity, right? It's just her and the children that will live in the house together. I wonder what other people's interpretation of that is. Like maybe I'm missing something. 
I actually don't like to read reviews before I talk about a film. Um, I don't even like usually listen to other episodes either because it will influence me and I don't want that. I want to try to give my own thoughts and shape my opinions about a film. That's an interesting part of the film where it's just the three of them at the end along with the servants and they're just going to live in this house because they refuse to leave and they run that family out that had moved in. But it's just for me it's such a fascinating device, a fascinating twist that usually with horror films and with haunted house films we get the perspective of those who are living in the house and who are being haunted, who are having to deal with ghosts, like think of the Amityville horror or think of The Conjuring. We we see their perspective of them having to deal with ghosts and deal with the crazy things that happen in the house. And the others completely subverts that, com- completely flips it on its head and, and, and says, well, what if we told the story of the ghosts? What if we told the other side Like literally the other side, if you believe that, that there is this other side where the dead still exist. Like it's about telling their story and about how they ended up like that and why they're in the house and how they're not actually purposely haunting it, that they think that they're still alive. And the haunt, the things that seem like haunting is just them living their lives. You know, Um, that's fascinating to me that they're not purposely haunting this family. They're just living their lives and going about their lives. And and it ends up scaring the hell out of these people, <laughs> you know, for them to like put up the drapes or to lock the doors. Like she always locks the doors. Remember Grace, like she has those keys in her hand. She's always locking the doors. Well, imagine what it's like for the people who are alive and then they go up to a door and it's locked. But throughout the whole film, she's just doing things that are natural to her. So the living and the dead, they're clashing in that way. And it's just this fascinating premise to me of like, well, what if there was this world of the living and there was this world of the dead and how those could overlap and mix together in really fascinating ways. And that's what the film, you know, looks at on top of so many other things. So to me, that's just such a creative device. Like what this film feels like is, is like an old fashioned film in a way, like so well written. Like when you think of Clouseau's Lady, the Lady Diabolique, that is such a well-written, wonderfully paced, suspenseful film. And it's smart. It's just a very smart film. I'm not going to give away that film either. So I like smart films. I like well-written, well-constructed films. And for me, The Hours has that. Like every every step of the way, it's just beautifully constructed And you don't know where it's taking you the first time that you watch. It's just like with The Sixth Sense. You don't know where all of this is leading to. And then it's revealed to you. And there is like nothing more pleasurable almost than when you are reading a mystery or you're watching a mystery film or a horror film. I would call this more of like a mystery. There's, well, I guess it's not technically a mystery. It's not like you're trying to find out who murdered who. Although there is a murder in the film, obviously. This is definitely horror, but there is just almost nothing better than when you get that big reveal. Like when you're reading a mystery and you find out who the murderer is, or when you're watching something like this and there's this huge twist at the end, 
And it's like, oh my God, like your mind's blown. You just, oh God, there's nothing better. It's like when you're in bed and you're reading a mystery and like you're just turning the pages furiously and you just can't stop and you're just devouring this book. I love that personally. I love that feeling. And that is why I continue to read sort of mystery and crime fiction personally is because there is like a high to it. There is, it's the same thing I think with these Netflix docuseries or even something like The Jinx on HBO. There is just something incredibly intoxicating or even Sharp Objects. When when I was watching Sharp Objects on HBO and did my recap episodes, like every week wondering, well, how is this going to end and who's the killer? And, and I'm not going to give it away. I'm not going to do that to you because um, it was actually spoiled for me and I was so mad. <laughs> but there is just something so like there must be an endorphin release when it happens. Like when you're reading a really good Agatha Christie book, like, and then there were none or something like that. Um, which I really, I love Agatha Christie personally. I'm a big fan of her work. Um, or Tana French. I absolutely love Tana French. She actually has a new book out and I'm like so excited to read it. So I've been getting into mystery fiction and I know I'm going on a tangent, but I don't care. I have just been getting into it and I just got my mom a book off eBay today that she had been interested in. I got it really at a good price. Um, So she's kind of getting more into mystery. I'm getting back into it. We always watch the true crime docuseries together. We watched The Staircase together. We watched Making a Murderer. We're really excited about the second season. I always watch my true crime stuff with my mom. Um, So it's just like this thrill And I think something happens with certain horror films, too, when there's some kind of big twist and really big payoff. It's like an endorphin rush, and you just feel a high off of it. I mean, you get so consumed and so absorbed in it. And when you get that payoff, it is so good. It feels so good. (laughs) Um, And The Others has that power to it. It's so, I mean, it was very suspenseful to me personally. I was like, what is going to happen? You know, and then there was a pleasure in watching it the second time where I was wondering, ooh, what's going to happen? What's, well, no, the second time I wasn't wondering what's going to happen. I was, I was actually more engaged and I was actually more critical as I was watching the second time because I was thinking about how, um, how he was leaving us clues throughout the narrative Amenabar was and and how you can put all those pieces together the second time and you can see you can the thing about a film like this is that everything has to almost have a double meaning has to have a double possibility like everything that is put in the film everything about it has to have a double meaning it has that meaning the first time you're watching it and you don't know what's coming And then it has that second meaning where you realize, oh, that's why the curtains were were taken down. The servants didn't take the curtains down. The homeowners took them down. And, oh, that's not a ghost playing the piano. That's somebody in the house playing the piano. And Grace thinks that it is a ghost. Like, everything has to have that double meaning to it. Or a double interpretation or multiple or ambiguous interpretations. And that's how it works is that you assume one thing about it. Like the old lady 
in in the communion dress like when the little girl is in her communion dress and her veil that's been like so parodied like in pop culture and it's like a big part of the film it's a big scene at the first the first time you're thinking why in the world is this old lady in this veil what is this and then at the end it all makes sense because she is the medium she's trying to connect with grace and maybe that's a moment at which grace connects with her and she's terrified of it and instead of seeing her daughter in the communion dress, she sees this old lady, this medium. So everything has to work on multiple levels for it to make sense at the end and for it to make sense in repeat watches. So I loved this film. I absolutely loved it. I was reading how Roger Ebert gave it like not a lot of stars and I guess he didn't like it, but... It's like one of my favorite horror films because I think they're, I don't think it's gimmicky. I think it could have been. I think it could easily have been just this big twist at the end. But I think the best films, even when they have these big twists and these things that you don't see coming, I think if they're written well and they're directed well, they can actually work on multiple levels and you can actually see new things when you're watching them for a second, a third, a fourth, how many ever, how many other times you watch it. So for me, The Others is definitely like a staple in my horror film can, canon. But of course, you have to take that with a grain of, of salt or a grain of sand. I don't know what the saying is. Because I'm not a horror, like, aficionado personally. Although I've really started to get interested in, in Asian horror films from the early 2000s. And I have a lot of plans to watch some more of those. Like, I really want to watch Audition. And I want to watch Creepy. And I want to watch Dark Water. Not the American remake. Although I do like the American remake, I will be honest. And The Ring and The Grudge. I want to watch the original Asian versions of those films. Um, I, I find myself very drawn to Asian horror from the early 2000s, personally. There's one called Pulse, and it's just amazing. I saw that a few years ago, and there's this really good Thai horror film called Shudder. I was really impressed by that one, so I'm getting very interested in Asian horror from the early 2000s. I gotta explore that more. And then I like some of the more classic horror films too. Like like I said earlier, like Eyes Without a Face and Lady Diabolique and, and things like that. So I'm not a horror aficionado by any means. But I wanted to celebrate the the Halloween holiday. I wanted to get into the spirit of it. And I wanted to talk about The Others. I, I just, I think it's a really great film. I've really enjoyed talking about it. To sum everything up, <laughs> for me, what's great about this film is that it works on multiple levels. It works on that first viewing when you don't know what's going to happen. And then it works on repeat viewings when you realize the story and you know what's coming. And so you can see how all of that came together it still works for me personally. I didn't know if it would. When I rewatched the film, I didn't know how, how it would affect me or what I would think of it. And I was really impressed with it. I think that it's a film really about some of the trauma of the Second World War. I think it's about grief and madness, but also a woman 
living in a time and place that is profoundly terrifying and horrific and a woman who's not able to process it or to handle it because she's alone with her children in this isolated house she's grieving her husband worrying about her husband she's terrified of what could happen to her and her children and something in her breaks something in her just crumbles And she loses, I think she loses a connection to reality, I guess. So I think the film works in that way as well, is that it's really looking at this, this woman who's alone and isolated trying to raise these children during a war and what that can do to a person and how the horror within the home can sometimes mirror or it can be created by the horror that's happening outside of the home. Because even though they have this big mansion, they are not protected from this war. Nobody was protected from it. Everybody was vulnerable. Everyone was scared and terrified. And it just works as a really great gothic film. You know, it has this very eerie mood. This large house shrouded in fog. Um, all these trees on the on the estate with these gnarled branches on these bare trees it has creaky floors it has uh creepy servants and (laughs) it has um the children are a little bit creepy aren't they they're very isolated because of that photosensitivity and they've really only known the confines of that house and maybe the isolation drives her mad too that she's stuck in that house she's not able to really leave it she's terrified right and trying to protect herself trying to protect her children but then that isolation and that loneliness itself can be a trigger perhaps for her madness as well and so it just has all the hallmarks of a really great gothic haunted house film and i just find those endlessly delicious and fascinating Because I think all of us are haunted. I think all of us are like haunted houses in a way. That our minds are haunted. We are haunted by perhaps the people we've lost. Or the things that we've been through. Or the trauma we've experienced. And so the subject of haunting. The theme of haunting. And the way that it is sort of literalized and made concrete and represented through the haunted house is really fascinating to me. Um, The idea of haunting and of being haunted. And they are both. Grace is haunted by the death of her husband. She's haunted by what she went through in the war, obviously. And then they are haunting anybody who comes and lives into the house. So they haunt and then they are the haunted as well. So there's like so much to this film. As I'm talking about it, I realize that I think it moved me on a lot of different levels and and just it worked for me personally. It may not work for everybody, but I, I hope that I've laid out my case and just told you why I really love this film, why it's in my horror canon And maybe it's in yours too. Maybe it's a film that you really like. Let me know. You know, if you're on social media, if you're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, let me know what you think of this film. Even if we disagree, but try to be nice about it. (laughs) I don't like, like, really negative interactions with people personally. It's just, I just don't like that at all. So even if we disagree, try to be nice about it. 
But I'd love to know what you think about the film. And I think Nicole Kidman gives a really great performance too. It's it's part of this string of really good films, that she, really great films that she did. And now with Big Little Laws and different things like that, she's really started to come make a little bit of a comeback. I think for a few years she was kind of maybe not getting the best projects uh, that she could have gotten. And she's showing once again what a stellar, brilliant, gifted actress she is. And I just absolutely love Nicole. Like, I'm such a huge fan of hers. So, this is definitely a really good performance on her part. And she she makes you believe it, absolutely. She she And she has to play that character on a dot, lot of different levels. You never sense that she's killed her children. You never sense that. So... She plays her in a really fascinating uh, way for me. So I will stop here. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now. <laughs>